Will you turn with me, please, to the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter 11. I have a new friend uh, down at my bank, and uh, she was processing the uh, <clears throat> vast amount of money that changes hands when I go down there uh, the other day. And she, uh, she said to me, what comes after Daniel? And uh, I thought she was talking about the order of the books in the Old Testament. And I said, Hosea. And uh, she said, no, no, I mean, what are you going to preach on after Daniel? And I said, Philippians. And I think what uh, passed, passed across her face was a look of relief. Uh, I'm not sure. Some of you I know have had a very difficult time with this book. It is a very, very difficult book to understand. It's uh, ironic, perhaps, that this book belongs to a style of literature that we call apocalyptic, because our word apocalyptic, or apocalypse, comes from a Greek word that means to reveal. This book is designed to reveal. But we need to understand that the revelation we have is not a revelation of detail so much as the broad picture. The picture we, we've been getting is that of God on his throne, seated on a sea of glass, in control behind the scenes. That's the great revelation that, that comes through loud and clear, though the details sometimes are obscure to us. When we study these books, we have to be content with not knowing everything, and that's unsettling to most of us. We like to have everything, all the details. I read a story this last week about a woman who went to uh, learn from a guru, and uh, her question, uh, her request was uh, to learn everything. I want to know how to know everything. So he handed her a big stack of books and told her to read the books and come back in a week. A week later, she came back, and he said, you know everything? And, and uh, she said no, and so he whacked her over the head with his cane and gave her another stack of books and told her to go back and read another week. She came back the next week, and he said, you know everything? She said no, and so he began to wail on her again with his, with his cane. And this went on for several months until one day she came back with a stack of books and he said, do you know everything? And, and she said no. And he started to hit her with his cane and she reached up and grabbed the cane and gave him a whack. And he said, now you've got the point. Not only can you not know everything in this world, but you have to live with the pain of not knowing everything. <laughs> so uh, that's what we have to do. We have to learn to deal with the pain of not, uh, not knowing everything. Now, as I said before, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are a unit. Daniel tells us that this is a description of a great war, a great conflict, and uh, the words that are used, the verbs that are formed, uh, that, are, that are found in this passage, to fight, to march in a rage, to attack, to be victorious, are all descriptions of, of a conflict. Now, remember, we don't have the vision here that Daniel saw. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 have to do with one vision. We're not given the vision that Daniel saw, but we're given the explanation in chapters 11 and 12. Let's begin reading with verse 2. This is the man, as he's described in chapter 10, the angel, perhaps the angel of the Lord, who begins to speak to Daniel. Now then, I will tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia. That is, three kings from Daniel's time. Cyrus was the king at the time Daniel wrote. The next king would be Cambyses, who was Cyrus' brother, or his son, rather. And then another king, whose name was Pseudosmertus, or there are other names that he went by. And then Darius Histospes, and finally Xerxes, that we know from the Old Testament as Ahasuerus. These are the four kings that, that immediately succeeded uh, uh, Cyrus. The fourth will be far richer than all the others. That was certainly true of Xerxes. He was the greatest of all the Persian kings. 
When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. That's exactly what he happened. And the battles that you're familiar with from your history classes, Thermopylae and Marathon and, and the Salamis, these great battles that took place between the Persians and the Greeks, were all because of the Persian preoccupation with, with conquering Greece. Uh, Xerxes was behind it all. He, he sacked and burned the city of Athens, burned the Acropolis, and instilled in the Greeks an, an enormous hatred for Persians from that, that time on. Now, there are a number of other Persian kings that followed Xerxes, seven to be exact, but Daniel, at least the angel in his interpretation, jumps right over that whole period of time and moves down 130 years to the time of Alexander. Then a mighty king will appear, that's Alexander, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Now, it's interesting, that's all that's said of Daniel here. He's, he's the greatest conqueror in ancient history. Conquered the world in 12 years. And one sentence is given to his exploits. Eight words in Hebrew. And actually, all that's said is that he did as he pleases. And because God is not concerned so much with what's happening in the political arena. It's not the external historical happenings that he focuses upon, but upon what's happening to people. Because that's his concern. And he looked into Alexander's heart. And he was a totally self-centered, self-assertive man. He just did what he what he pleased. That, that's always the, that's the perspective of Scripture. For example, in the Old Testament, you read of a man named Omri, who was the greatest king of the northern kingdom of Israel, greatest king they ever had in terms of political accomplishments. He conquered everything up to the Euphrates, subdued the Syrians, uh, bought the city of Samaria, developed the capital of the northern kingdom at Samaria. The only thing the Bible says about him is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. This man is, was so well known in the ancient Near East that the Assyrians called Palestine Omri land for a hundred years after his death. That's the kind of impact that he made upon the, the ancient world. But as far as God's concerned, he just did evil. That's all God just looked right into his heart. His accomplishments as, a, as head of state meant nothing. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's one of the themes of this, of this chapter. Three times this phrase, we're going to find this phrase. The king did as he pleases. And that's one of a number of themes that we'll pick up through the book because man looks on the outward appearance. Man looks at what accomplishments we do as human beings. God looks at the heart. He's concerned about what's happening with people. Now let's move on. Uh, verse 4. After he's appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four wings of heaven, uh, winds of heaven. We've talked about that before. That was the division of... Alexander's kingdom under his generals, uh, Cassander, Lysimachus, Lucas, and Ptolemy. His kingdom was parceled up into four states. It will not go to his descendants. As I told you before, his wife, Alexander's wife, Roxanne, was murdered. His son, who was the heir apparent, was murdered. Nor will it have the power he exercised. The, uh, the, these four kingdoms never had the power of the Macedonian Empire. Nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now we, we the, the, the vision shifts, and the concern of the angel from this point on is on the two eastern divisions of Alexander's kingdom. Remember, there are four divisions. Two were in the east. There was the Seleucid Empire, which, which would, would be today modern Syria, everything east to India, and there's the Ptolemaic Empire in the south, which would be Egypt. And Daniel, from this point on, is focused on those two eastern kingdoms. 
Because those two kingdoms bracketed the land of Palestine. You had little Israel in the middle. You had Syria up here in the north, Egypt in the south. And, and, and the land of Palestine was a battleground. So it was God's people living in Jerusalem who were, who were experiencing the... the they, they, were, they were the ones who were catching the heat. They were the ones that were suffering while these two major powers work out their conflict. And that's why Daniel focuses on, on these two powers in the East. All sorts of things were going on in the West, in Greece and Macedonia and in Asia Minor. But, but Daniel doesn't focus on those two divisions. He focuses on the two to the East. Now, I, I'm not going to take time to read through the rest of chapter 11 and comment on it. If I did, it would be a Salmonic sermon for sure. Your eyes would glaze and you'd keel over and fall right under the chair. Matter of fact, I was asking Stan, we were talking about what what we're going to do with this uh, passage in growth groups. How are you going to handle it? Stan said he read through it and uh, scheduled a potluck. <clears throat> but it starts off like this. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. The king of the south, who was Ptolemy I, he was one of Alexander's generals. Ptolemy Soter, savior, was his name. The king of the south will become strong. That was the uh, the one of, of Alexander's generals who became head of state of the Egyptian uh, uh, empire. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his, Alexander's commanders, will become even stronger. That was Seleucus I, who became the king of Syria and points uh, east. Uh, one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with a great power. After some years, they will become allies. It is Ptolemy and Seleucus. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north. There's an attempt to try to form an alliance as a result of a royal marriage. That didn't work because her name was Berenice, and when she moved up to Syria, she was murdered. Her child was murdered. And uh, then uh, uh, the, her husband's ex-wife killed her ex-husband. So the whole thing fell apart. He and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father or her son and the one who supported her so that that alliance uh, fell apart. The, the, the thing that's so remarkable about this chapter is that how closely it follows history. It's almost history written in advance. We often say prophecy is not history written in advance. It doesn't try to pick up all the details. But this is one case where prophecy is just that extremely detailed, which is one reason why the critics have so much trouble with this book and why they have to late date it. They have to put it down in the third century after the fact because it, it's too accurate. It just, it just hits right on the nose. So they've got to do something about that. Uh, the story goes on. One from her family line, that is her brother, will arise to take her place. He, that was Ptolemy III, will attack the forces of the king of the north. That was a man named Seleucus Callinicus. And so forth. It goes on and on and on. You, any good history book will give you the details of, of this period. The story of Antiochus the Great follows in verses 11 on through uh, verse 20, or actually verse 19. One thing I want you to note about Antiochus is the statement in verse 16, The invader, who in that case is Antiochus, will do as he pleases. So let that uh, stay in your mind. Alexander the Great did as he pleased. Antiochus the Great did as he pleased. Verse 20, his successor, who was Seleucus IV, will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger in battle. He was poisoned by his prime minister, as a matter of fact. Verse 21, he, now you'll notice what happens. The, 
you'll slip from one generation to the next without the text notifying you. You go from one generation of Seleucids or Ptolemies right on down into the next generation. And that's what happens here. A fairly large jump down to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember this man we talked about whom the Jews called Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the crazy man? This, this man who's described here as the despicable person who succeeded his, his, uh, his father, or his uncle, actually, and who came to the, uh, came to the throne through intrigue, as the text uh, puts it. He will invade the kingdom, that is the kingdom of Egypt, when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue with an overwhelming army. And then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him, both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. It's a reference to the high priest of Israel, Onias III. We talked about him a few weeks ago and his assassination by, by Antiochus. Verse 25, with a large army, he will stir up strength and courage against the king of the south. That will be Ptolemy VI. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Again, we talked about that event. Antiochus... Uh, invaded Egypt, and on that occasion was victorious, the next time he was not. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, that is the king of the north, who would be Antiochus Epiphanes, and the king of the south, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. I read that this week and thought that would be a great slogan to put on the wall in the uh, uh, where the Security Council meets, uh, the Security Council of the United Nations. The two kings will sit down at the same table and lie to each other. But to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. You see what he's saying? These men, through intrigue, will try to uh, try to gain the mastery over one another, but the outcome is up to God. He determines what happens, not these two lying kings sitting at the conference conference table. And then let's, let's, let's move on to verse 31. He has armed forces. This is Antiochus Epiphanes again. Will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress. He erected a statue to Zeus, uh, as you know, out in the courtyard of the temple, and will abolish the daily sacrifice. He cut off the sacrifice, and uh, he prohibited circumcision. He murdered little children, little Jewish children that they found on the streets that bore the marks of circumcision. Murdered their families. Forbade the uh, reading of the law shut down their worship in, in the temple. And they set up the abomination that causes desolation, what the Jews call the Shukat Shomam. They, they uh, slaughtered a pig on the altar, place of sacrifice, and made a broth out of the meat of that, the flesh of that pig and forced the priests to drink it and then slaughtered them. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the, the covenant, that, that, that is, those that sold out, those that were, were not loyal to the Lord. But the people who know their God firmly resisted him, or will resist him in this case, because it's looking at it prophetically. And they did. These were the Hasidim, the ones that were loyal to the covenant during this terrible, terrible time of, of persecution. These were the ones that continued to, to walk with God. Now, I, I want you to, to pay a special attention to verses 33 through 35 because this introduces us to another theme. This is by far one of the most important statements in the entire book. I want you to look at this. Those who are wise will instruct many. The wise will cause others to, to get wisdom or gain insight is the meaning of the word. Though for a time they will fall 
by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. They're, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to suffer. They're going to hurt. There will be a lot of pain. They'll die. And uh, their goods will be plundered and they'll be put in prison. But when they fall, fall into persecution, they'll receive a, a little help. Interesting. I think that's a disparaging comment about the kind of help that they receive from the, from the, the Maccabean revolt. Remember, we talked about this event in Israel's history. This was a turning point, Jews will say, in their history. And it was. One of those times in history that, that uh, caused national pride and make you feel good about, about your country. The Maccabees were, as you know, a group of uh, revolutionaries that, that overthrew Syrian rule and were able to reinstitute sacrifices in the temple, cleanse the temple, and set up the order of service in, in the temple again. The interesting to me, interesting thing to me is the way their, their activities are described. Jewish people today look back on those events with an enormous amount of pride, and rightly so. God looks at it and says, well, it, it was a little help, a little help. Okay, so, you know, maybe may we made a little progress toward things that are really important in, that, uh, in, in the Maccabean Rebellion. And many who are not sincere will join them. And as there will be phonies that will join the Hasidic movement, those that are loyal to the Lord, who love him with all their heart and are willing to suffer for him. Some of the wise, he says, will fall. Uh, the NIV says stumble, but it's the same word that's translated fall all the way through the passage. Some of, some of, the, some of the wise will fall so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come. At the appointed time. Now, it was that statement that struck me, because as, God, as far as God is concerned, that's the really important thing that's going on. It wasn't the Maccabean revolt. It wasn't the independence that Israel gained, because they frittered the thing away after, after the, that generation of Maccabees died. John Hyrcanus, who was the leader of the movement for a time, died. They frittered and, 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 and fussed the thing away. They, they couldn't get along with one another. They lost the liberties that they had, eventually the Romans then conquered, conquered Palestine. So it was a very short life, short-lived uh, uh, liberty that they, that they experienced. And when God looks at it, he says, well, you know, it was helpful. It was helpful. But let me tell you what, what, what's really valuable about this time. Many, many, he says, were refined and purified and made spotless. See, he's looking at man's heart. He's seeing the results of the suffering on the people of God. And what it did for them. And it makes me think we ought to go back and revise our history if we're going to look at, at history the way God looks at it. And we, we, we look at our Declaration of Independence as a great turning point in the history of our nation. And it is something to be proud of. I'm not denigrating that at all. But it may well be in God's eyes that the turning point was not the Declaration of Independence, but it was the Great Depression. When men and women came to the end of themselves, when they lost their fortunes, and some of them jumped out of the window and others turned to God. And in God's assessment of history, you know, he, he, he will probably tell us that that was by far the more significant historic event. Or, let's look at the history of Boise. People will tell you that the 60s and 70s were the halcyon years around here. You know, those are the days to look back to with great pride because that's when Boise was, you know, we were burgeoning, we were, Growing rapidly, I think third uh, fastest growing city in in the state. And everybody looks back. You know, those were the good years. Those were the banner years. 
And I came in 1978, and everything fell apart after that. I don't know what part my coming had to do with that, but starting about 1980s, you know, the housing industry began to lag, and, and the economy began to decline. You know, and, and, and looking back on that, we say the 60s and the 70s were the boom years, but it's a busted economy after after 80. God may look at that and say, no, the really significant years are, are those years when men and women were reduced to nothing, when they were bankrupt and they lost their homes and they lost their fortunes and they lost their pride and they, and they came to God on their hands and knees and pled for mercy and God saved them. And in terms of an eternal perspective, that's by far, by far, the more important period of time. Same is true for our own personal history. You know, we look at the times when we, when we advance. We look at a, at a promotion as a, as a banner year, but it may be the year you were fired because that was the year you came to the end of yourself. Or maybe the year you were bankrupted because you came to realize that you couldn't live without God. You see, you, we have to learn to look at history the way God looks at history. And that's what he's doing for us here. That's why I say this book is a revelation. Rips away the curtain and it shows us what's happening behind the scenes and what really matters. And what really matters is what God is doing in your heart and in mine. Not what's happening, not, not the historical happenings on the surface. We've got to get that in our head. That's what Daniel wants us to know. Now let's move on. Verse 36 is a... a Intriguing verse. The king, he says, will do as he pleases. And I ask myself the question, what king? King of the north or the king of the south? Neither. Because look at verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle. Oh, it must be then the king of the north. No. And the king of the north will storm out against him. So this is a third party. It's neither the king of the north, that is the Syrian king, or the Egyptian king. It's a third party who's just called the king, who does as he pleases. Now here's the third time we've heard that phrase. Here's another thoroughly self-centered man. Thoroughly self-indulgent. Thoroughly self-asserting. The king will do as he pleases. Now listen to this. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. That is the God of Israel. Our God. Or for the one desired by women. That's the Messiah. Our Lord Jesus. Nor will he regard any God. He, he, he will essentially be an atheist but will exalt himself above them all. In other words, he will be God. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, that a God of force and power and might, a God unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land, the land of Palestine, at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him from the south, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, that's Palestine, 
Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt. And the Libyans and Nubians will be in submission. But reports from the east, reports from the east and the north will alarm him and will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas, that is, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, at the beautiful holy mountain, that's Mount Zion, the place where uh, the city of Jerusalem uh, is today. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. And I say, who is this? If you read the commentators, a lot of them will say this is Antiochus Epiphanes. But the historical facts don't fit. This man dies in Palestine. His Antiochus Epiphanes died up in Syria. This man fights his, his final battle right in the middle of Palestine between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea and, and Mount Zion. Antiochus was on his way to, a, to a, a conflict with people off to the east. He was way up in the northeast part, part of Syria when, when he met his death. Edom, Moab, and Ammon are said here to be aligned with him. That was never true of Antiochus' time. So this can't refer to Antiochus' epiphanies. Who, who are we talking about here? Well, I, I think this is the man that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2. Will you turn to that passage with me, please? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's the second coming of our Lord. It's the same word that's used in verse 8. When we're told that uh, the Lord Jesus will overthrow the lawless one with the breath of his mouth, which is a quotation from Isaiah 11 that refers to the coming of God at the end of time, uh, and destroy by the splendor of his coming, same word that's used uh, in 2.1. So it's clearly a reference to the second coming when our Lord comes uh, in judgment. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. The day of the Lord is the day when God begins to intervene in human affairs. He begins to put an end to all this nonsense that we've been doing to ourselves and, and to others. And, and the people in Paul's day were experiencing a great deal of suffering, and they were thinking that perhaps this was this final period that the Old Testament predicts of great trouble for God's people. Paul says, no, this is not it. This is not it. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The rebellion that Daniel describes, when this man will, will show no regard for the God of his fathers or for the Lord Jesus or for any God, but will exalt himself against them all. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God. It's a paraphrase of what Daniel said. He opposes and exalts himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped and even sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Here's the man who finally pulls it off. All of our life we've wanted to be God. You see, that's the problem with the human race. It began in the fall when Satan, when Satan introduced into our minds the thought, you too can be God. You don't have to be subject to God. You can run your own life. And we believe that lie ever since. We, we, we like to think of ourselves as the center of the universe, the center of the world. And given enough power, we can almost pull it off. 
As Winston Churchill said a, of a particularly arrogant colleague of his, there but for the grace of God goes God. You know, if it weren't for the grace of God and his controlling, uh, uh, his capacity to control us, we, we'd all think of ourselves as God. I mean, let's don't kid ourselves. We would. Here's a man who finally can do it, and he makes life a hell on earth for God's people. I, I have a friend who absolutely hates Christians. He just breathes venom out about Christians every time I, I have a conversation with him. And I've often thought, given enough power, that man would have us in the arena. You take a man with that, or a woman, with that outlook, and you put them in a totalitarian state, and you give them ultimate power, and they'll make life a hell on earth for Christians. Or you take a man with that kind of power, and as a single person, he, he can do a little bit of harm, but you make him the head of a home, you make him a husband, and he, he can make life a hell on earth for that family. See, Daniel puts his finger right on the problem. This, this man embodies and epitomizes everything that's wrong with the human race from the very beginning. God has been suppressing and restraining lawlessness so that none of us can, can quite make it happen. Idi Amin couldn't make it happen. Alexander the Great was cut down in his youth. Antiochus the Great was, was uh, assassinated in the end. Th this man will, will, will come closer to making it happen than anyone else. And, and it, it seems to me that all of Scripture points forward to this time when someone in the future is going to come, this lawless one, the one we call the Antichrist, who embodies the spirit of Antichrist, who will exalt himself over God. He'll pull it off until God judges him. But I, I think the reason God lets it happen is not because he's playing with the human race, but because he wants to let us see what we're really like. Given enough, given enough room, given enough power, we all want to be God. And this man will make life hell for God's people. Chapter 12 says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name written in the book, will be delivered. Now, this is a description of what we call the Great Tribulation, this period of history just before the coming of Christ. When God takes his hands off of the, the, the man of sin, he lets him manifest himself as the lawless one, and he will make life absolutely miserable for Christians. But we'll be delivered. But we will not be delivered from the struggle or even from death. Because Daniel goes on to tell us, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life. That is our deliverance. That's our renewal. Do you understand that? We can't expect our just desserts here in this world. We're going to struggle. We're going to hurt. We're going to have pain. We're going to be misunderstood. We're going to have tough times. But one of these days, we're going to be delivered. And that deliverance is through a death and a resurrection. That's our renewal. That's why I said last week, the, the verse that has been most telling in my life in recent months is Peter's statement that we hope for a new heaven and earth wherein lies righteousness. We're not going to find it here. But we're going to find it there. So what, if you're one of the wise ones, as, as he calls them, living during this time, 
What's your perspective? Well, you don't expect justice in this world. You just keep waiting for that deliverance. Everyone whose name is found written in the book, the book of life, that's those of you that have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're in the book not because you're spectacularly spiritual. It's because you have put your faith in Christ. And he writes your name in his book. You'll be delivered through a resurrection. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame. Everybody lives forever. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. I've been told that the total amount of knowledge in the human race doubles every two and a half years. But uh, all the knowledge that we've acquired does nothing for us in terms of coming to know God or dealing with our basic problems. The only book that deals with the fundamental problem of man is guilt, is separation from God, is separation from one another, is this book. And the picture that you have is Daniel writing this book, rolling it up, sticking a seal on it, putting the piece of wax on there with his, his mark, stuffing into one of those ceramic uh, urns that they stored their, their, um, their books in, putting it on the shelf so that when anybody goes through a period of time like this, they can take that book out and begin to read it. And it'll give them a, a new perspective on life and the hard times. That's what we have to do with this book. When the going gets tough, the tough don't get going, they go get the book. And they open it up and they read and they discover two things. One is that we've got to be realistic about life. Our hope is not in this life, it's in the next. And in the meantime, while we're here in this life, we need to be leading people into righteousness. Did you see that line? Those who are wise, uh, actually I, I think uh, the NIV is right in the footnote. Those who, who impart wisdom. Those who impart wisdom will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That preserves the parallelism in, in the passage. What he's saying is that while you are going about your business, waiting for the coming of Christ, you're not sitting up on the top of your house in a white robe, twiddling your thumbs and waiting for, for the Lord to come back, you get about the business of helping other people come to know God. So I'm an electrical contractor, or I'm a housewife. Don't make any difference. Your main business is to help people come to know God. And that's the most important thing that you can do with your life. That's what Jesus meant when he said we, we ought to be storing up treasure in heaven. The only thing we're going to send to heaven is, is people. People in whose lives we've, we've invested the character that, we've, that we ourselves have acquired by God's grace as we've walked with him and he's changed us, and, and the character that others are acquiring as we have introduced them to Christ and then helped them to grow up, up to maturity. One of these days, every one of us will stand before our Lord. It'll be the, uh, the, the sort of thing that, that, uh, that I used to have to do with my father at the end of the day. There's a great deal of love and, 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 and total acceptance there, but I, I had to tell him how things went through the day and whether I, I can't fell through, uh, followed through with what I was asked to do. And Paul says, we're going to have that kind of judgment. We'll stand before our Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus. And he'll say, how did you invest your time? He said, well, I became a president of my corporation. It's marvelous. 
It's marvelous. But did you lead anybody into righteousness? Well, they'll say, well, I, I made $100,000 a year. It's wonderful, but you, you know where all that is now? You left it back there. Did you lead anybody into righteousness? So well, I lost 50 pounds. That's wonderful. But did you lead anybody into righteousness? Did, did you send any treasure on ahead? Is there anything up here that's worthwhile that you invested in while, while you were on earth? Do you see what he's saying in this passage? There's this terrible conflict going on all around. And people are suffering and they're being imprisoned and they're dying and they're losing everything. But they have their eye on the future, on the future hope that's theirs when they go to be with the Lord. And in the meantime, they're investing their lives in the people around them. They're leading them into righteousness. And that's the perspective we have to maintain in times of trouble. Because times of trouble are always times of opportunity. Paul said, redeem the time because the days are evil. The more evil the world becomes, the more heart-sick and hungry people become, and the more opportunities we have to lead them into righteousness. So don't, let's not waste our time, for goodness sake. Amassing power and wealth and accumulating toys and junk that's going to burn up someday, let's invest it in, in, in a commodity that's going to endure. Now, uh, there are two questions that are raised at the end of the book, and we're, we're almost done. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, two other angels, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was suspended above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? So the question is, when? When will all of this come to an end? How long, O oh Lord? I, I thought of that poster of the cat you know, hanging on the pole that all of you have seen. How long, O oh Lord? How long will it be? How long do we have to endure? How long do we have to put up with this? How long does this suffering last? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven in a posture of swearing, taking an oath. I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it'll be for a time, times, and half a time. And as I told you before, I think that's a symbolic number. could be three and a half years. could refer to the last three and a half years of what we call the tribulation period. I'm not discounting that. But I think basically it's used as a symbolic number. One plus two, you'd expect four, but you have half. In other words, it's a finite, limited number. Three and a half years to someone who understood this, uh, this apocalyptic literature, I think, I'm not certain, but I think would simply mean a finite, limited number. It's going to last this long. Well, what will, what will bring about the terminus? What, what limits it? When the power of the holy people has been finally broken... All these things will be completed. Why does our suffering go on? Well, well, God doesn't send the pain. He's the author of good. But he will permit the enemy to afflict us. He will take his hands off of the evil one for a time and, and let him produce pain in our life. Why? So our, our strength will be broken so that we're brought to the end of ourselves. We get down on our hands and knees and we, we crawl to the foot of the cross and we admit that we're impotent. That, that, that as, as, I, as uh, uh, Watts puts it in his hymn, that, I, that I'm such a worm as I. He's not undignifying himself. He saw himself in the image of God, but he realized what he had become. 
and what all of us become apart from the grace of God? See, that's the point to, to which all of us have to come. We, our power is broken. Our strength is taken away from us, and we're brought to the end of ourselves. The angel says, how long is this going to go on? The other angel says, till, till God's people are broken, till their resistance comes to an end, and they begin to submit to the, to the lordship of their God. I heard, he said, but I didn't understand, so I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all of this be? And this is a different question. What is the purpose or why? First question is when. Second question is why. Why is why are we going through this? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. They'll just be bitter. They won't understand. They'll hate the suffering and they'll react against it. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Understand what? That the purpose of suffering is to refine, to make us more like the Lord Jesus, to take away our self-assertiveness, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our feeling that we and we alone are the only people in the world worthy of being served. That we are little tin gods. And, and the, the, the purpose of the hurt and the pain that we go through is, is to show us that that's ungodly. And to, to produce in us the character of Christ himself. A friend of mine told a story one time of a man who went in to watch a, a, an artist craftsman refining silver the silver in a large vat which he had heated and the silver was was reduced to a liquid molten and he was skimming the dross off the top as as the silver was heated the uh, impurities would float to the top and he would skim them off and the man said how long does this go on and he said it goes on until I can see my face in the silver And you see, that's what the Lord is doing to us and for us. He permits us to go through these times of pain to rid us of the dross, to refine us and to purify us and to make us spotless, to make us more and more like our Lord Jesus, to make us more patient, more kind, more loving, more humble. And those that know God, he says, will understand. Nobody else will understand. They'll just get better. But those who understand will get better. Because they'll be more and more conformed to the character of Christ. Now, uh, in verse uh, 11, we have another of these uh, funny numbers that keep turning up in, in Daniel. From the time of the daily, that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, 1,290 days is three and a half years plus 30, uh, 30 days. Three and a half years plus 30 days. 1,260 days would be uh, three and a half years. So this is just a little bit over over three and a half years. I think he's going back to Antiochus Epiphanes in that time because he refers to the abomination of desolation. And that event is always, uh, in the mind of the Jews, that was what what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He desecrated the temple in such a way that the Jews shuddered. That's the meaning of of that word. And... uh, Antiochus' persecution of the Jews back in the second century B.C. Uh, lasted for about that period of time, about three and a half years, give or take a few months. So I think this first figure refers to that to what happened in history during Antiochus' period, 
But notice he goes on to say, blessed is the one who has patience, is, is literally the verb, who has patience and reaches the 1,335 days. So that's three and a half years plus 75 days. I mean, what in the world is this? Well, there have been a lot of attempts to interpret these these numbers, and for myself, they're all shots in the dark because we don't know. The glossary of terms and numbers has been lost. We don't know what these what these uh, symbols mean. But I have a feeling, and I'm going to tell you what it is. Nobody else believes this, so take it with a grain of salt. You know what it reminded me of? You remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 24 after talk, after describing what life is going to be like for Christians, and there will be wars and rumors of wars and Things are going to get tougher and tougher until the Lord comes back. And then he, then he told a parable about a wicked steward and a, and a righteous steward. Actually, he calls them a wise and a wicked steward. A wise steward. Couldn't help but think of, of the reference here to those who are wise. Master of the house went away, left the goods of the house behind, told his stewards to feed the household. The wise steward continued to to feed the household until the master came back. Jesus said the wicked steward said to himself, our Lord is taking a long time to come back. The wicked steward fed uh, the household for 1,290 days and the master didn't show up. 1,291 days. 1,292 days, 1,293 days, master didn't show up. And so we're told that the wicked steward went out and got his club and started to beat uh, beat up the uh, members of the household. And he began to eat and drink with drunkards. In other words, he, you know, the characteristic of his life was lovelessness and self-indulgence. He just sort of went back to what he was. And when the master came back, you remember what he called him? He called him a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You, you never had any concerns about my household. You're not real. You're not authentic. You never were. I think what Jesus is saying is that if, if our Christianity is authentic, if we really love the Lord Jesus, we'll just keep serving and keep waiting for our Lord's return. We're of those that Paul describes, you know, the people who love his appearing, who look forward to that. And we just, we endure anything. We just keep plugging away. And we keep feeding his people. We keep dispensing righteousness, teaching, imparting truth to people, you see. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew 24 when he said, He who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, it's those who endure, who hang in there through persecution and suffering and struggle and pain and hurt. And they don't indulge themselves but they continue to feed the people of God that have the real thing. And that's the perspective I think the Lord wants us to maintain if we really know God, regardless of what's happening to us. We may be trying to right wrongs wherever we can. There's nothing wrong with that. But realistically, we need to realize that we have to wait, await His coming before things are set right. And in the meantime, we need to be feeding the sheep, instructing others in righteousness. And the final word for Daniel is in verse 13. <clears throat> as you go, as for you, he says, go 
till the end. In other words, endure to the end. Remember back in 827 when, when Daniel was so perplexed about the vision? It says he was, uh, he was sick. But he just went back to work. And he, and he continued to minister to the people that, that were around him. That's what he's saying. Go to the end. Endure to the end. You will rest. You know what that is? That's heart stop day. That's, that's the day that you have your cardiac arrest. That's the day when you rest. You won't get much rest in this life, he's saying. But uh, when you die, you'll rest. As Vance Havner put it, it's the hope of heaven, he says, it's kept me going this long. Or, pardon me, it's the hope of dying that's kept me going this long. You'll rest. And then at the end of the days, you'll rise to receive your allotted inheritance. We won't receive the reward that's given to those that are faithful in this life. That's what he's saying. But one of these days, we're going to die. And then we're going to be raised, and we're going to receive our inheritance, and the Lord is going to say, you did well. Well done, you good and faithful servant. Now, the, the question that I have to put to myself and I have to put to you is, what, what are we going to do with this material? I mean, this is God's word. This is serious business. What Daniel is saying to us, and what God himself, the Holy Spirit, is saying to us is that if we're really serious about Christian about our Christian life, we're not going to fritter our time away just amassing a personal fortune for ourselves or making a lot of money, or, uh, power, affluence, praise, appreciation, whatever whatever we normally live for. This is these are not the things that we ought to be living for. We need to fix our hope firmly on the salvation that is to come to us at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we receive our well done. And in the meantime, we need to be available to impart truth wherever we go. And I have to ask myself, and I have to ask you, who are you leading into righteousness? Who around you? That's what our Lord is looking for. He's not primarily concerned about the happenings here on the surface. He's, he's concerned about what's happening in the heart. What's happening to you? Are you growing in grace? And are you helping others to know God and grow in that relationship to Him? Let's pray. Now, we're about to enter into the Lord's table this morning. And this is a very significant time of worship for us because it's a time of self-analysis. We need to take a good, hard look at ourselves and what we've been living our lives for. We have to ask ourselves the question, to what extent are we waiting for his return and investing ourselves in the lives of, of others, regardless of whatever else we're doing or have to do? These are the things that, that really matter. And we need to ask ourselves if we're doing the things that, that really matter. Now, what we have to do in this table is go back to the cross. That's the purpose of it. Cross is the central fact of our faith. We go back to that place where our Lord not only paid for the guilt of our sin in the past, but he broke its power over us where we don't have to be self-centered any longer. We're free to serve. So let's pray together. Lord, help us to realize this morning what this death means, your death and ours. Help us to reckon daily upon the principle of the cross. Keep us, Lord, from 
from investing in things that, that will be burned up, that have no enduring, lasting value, and, and help us to make our major investment, Lord, in those things that, that will last eternally. Teach us this by your Spirit, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.